Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast created to enlighten, inspire, and inform those who work in or depend on the world's most important endeavor, agriculture. Here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings. Hey, thanks for being here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason. So glad that you're tuning in. This is episode 158, and it is a follow-up to episode 157. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I encourage you to check it out, although it's not completely required. But I'm going to take some of the thoughts that we covered in our last episode and expand upon them, because today we're going to talk about what if promotion is not enough, or when product promotion is not enough to keep up with production. That's today's topic. Reminder that the Business of Agriculture is sponsored by my good friends at Harvest Profit. It is a software solution. Harvest Profit, what is it you're saying? It's a software solution that helps you run your agricultural enterprise like the business it is. All the inputs, all of the money that you manage, all of your acres, your ground, your tenants, your machinery, everything that goes into an agricultural enterprise needs to be managed as the business that it is. And to do that, get the right tools. Harvest Profit is your answer. Go to harvestprofit.com for your free 14-day trial. Okay, so we're talking about promotion, and specifically we're following up a little bit on what we talked about last time because this is something that is so important for our business. Okay, rough numbers here, big picture stuff. Uh, and yes, if you're a fan, you've probably uh, you've probably heard me talk about my book about the business of agriculture called Food Fear. I'm going to pull a couple of uh, data points out of this book, but I'm also going to talk about the checkoff program because that's what we covered last time, right? So what about when promotion, and maybe it never will be enough to keep up with our production. That's where I think we're headed in agriculture. Big picture, 10,000 years ago, uh, humans started growing food. Instead of chasing after woolly mammoths and uh, you know trying to gather some berries and hoping they were not poisonous, we kind of settled down and started growing food, became agriculturalists. Uh, actually, we were not agriculturalists because that means we're an ag expert. We weren't experts at the beginning. We were pretty crappy at it. But you know what? It was better than going around starving. So we started growing food. That's what agriculture does. For 9,900 of agriculture's years, for 9,900 of those years, we still were in a situation of scarcity. Only in the last 100 years have we experienced this problem of extreme surpluses, of, of excess inventory, of carryovers, as we talk about in the grain markets, of having too much food. So in 1966, we began this thing called the uh, the uh, agricultural, uh, what the heck's it called here? I had it all written down for you. So we started the checkoff program, and they really was an idea of bringing together uh, the producer's money to use it for promotional purposes, research, and education. That's what the checkoff programs are. So that's what we discussed last time, and I told you the five fundamental flaws that I have seen with many of our agricultural promotion and research and education formats, especially from a promotional standpoint, from an entrepreneurial sales and promotional-minded uh, individual, that's me, I talked about the five mistakes that I see made when it comes to how to promote our products. I went and printed off the list. These are the 21 commodities, or the, the 21 commodity groups, if you will. These are the 21 checkoff programs. And by the way, if you're listening to this, you're driving your tractor, your truck, your car, and you're listening, I appreciate that. But I'm holding this up to the camera 
because now the business of agriculture is not just an audio podcast, it's also a video podcast. And so if you go to the Damian Mason channel on YouTube, it's as simple as that. Go onto YouTube, type in Damian Mason channel, you'll find my playlist for the business of agriculture there, along with my other podcast, the Do Business Better podcast. And I would like you to please subscribe. So I'm holding this up to the camera. If you're listening, just understand that I'm holding up a list. It's 21 different groups that were created over the years. Uh, They are sanctioned and monitored by the United States Department of Agriculture in conjunction, in many cases, with state departments of agriculture. And there is a 22nd group that is coming into being, the Pecan Research and Promotion Board. But the 21 that we have span from eggs, lamb, cattleman's beef board, Christmas tree, cotton board, fluid milk processors promotion program, the Hass Avocado Board, High Bush Blueberry Council, Mushroom Council, National Dairy Promotion and Research Board. Notice that dairy has two, two different organizations that are working on the promotion and research for the business of uh, dairy. National Honey Board, National Mango Board, National Peanut Board, National Pork Board, National Potato Promotion Board, National Watermelon Promotion Board, Paper and Packaging Board, Popcorn Board, Softwood Lumber Board, because remember, lumber is an agricultural product, United Sorghum Checkoff Program, and the United Soybean Board. And as I said, there's another group that's uh, not quite fully through all the approval processes, and that's the Pecan Research, or Pecan, some people call them, Research and Promotion Board. So what am I going to tell you about this? Well, here's the thing. I know that these groups were invented because they said a long time ago, hey, we got so much stuff, we want we got to sell it. And the way we sell it is we got to go out there and we got to promote this stuff, and then we're going to do research. We're going to give money to some university professors, and they're going to do research on how they might use our products for some other product, okay? Uh, for instance, biodiesel. Uh, we, we said, okay, we got lots of soybeans. What can we do with all these soybeans? We've been feeding them the soybean meal to hogs and cattle uh, and chickens. Uh, what else can we do with it? Well, let's figure out a way to make this crap into diesel because then we can sell this fuel. So that's how these things come about. The research, of course, is usually uh, uh, certainly valuable and usually results in some new uses for the commodity. Now, that's promotion and research and education. Education, um, you've heard my comments about this. You know, we do a lot of this thing where we say, we've got to educate our consumer. We've got to educate our consumer. And you've heard my points about this. If you haven't, I'll share them very frankly. Saying that we need to educate our consumers, first off, implies that they are stupid. Now, we know that they don't really know a lot about agriculture. We know that in a country where only 1% of us farm and only 7% of us work in the industry of ag and food, period, and that includes the person at Taco Bell waiting tables, or I'm sorry, giving you your your tacos, only 7% of us are involved in agriculture, period. We know that we do have a distance from the farm to the plate. We know that they aren't necessarily in the business like us. But when we say we've got to educate our consumers, what are we really saying? Hey, you don't understand what we do. But here's the point. I don't know that they care to be educated, as I have oftentimes pointed out. Here is my, right here in the home studio, right here is my iPhone. I don't know how it's made. I don't know how all the gadgetry inside of this thing works either. But I don't care because this makes my life easier. It makes my business flow. It means that I can be boarding an airplane, returning emails, checking out documents, and handling contracts. I don't need to be educated about everything, how uh, my iPhone works or how it was made or how the inner workings of it happen. What the hell difference does it make to me? I just want it to be making my life better. 
That's our consumer in agriculture. They want their life to be better, and they want our product to make their life better. They want food. They want fuel, fiber, whatever that thing should be. They don't necessarily need or want to be educated. Promotion, then, really is what it comes down to for all of our checkoff programs and for the good of our future. So when you think about how we're going to be successful, there's really only a few options, okay? This is economics 101 kind of stuff, but if you're sharing this with someone that is uh, maybe not in the business of agriculture, it's important that they understand what we got here. We're so darn good at making everything, right? We produce the hell out of everything from milk to avocados to pecans to uh, Christmas trees to peanuts. We produce stuff very, very well. We've gotten very good at it. All of our land-grant universities, those wonderful institutions over the last hundred years have cranked out smart young people that go out and try new things, and we produce things very well. We've got an agricultural community, farmers that adapt new innovations and better ways of treating our soil and our, our equipment is more efficient than it's ever been, and we produce lots of stuff. So you produce all this stuff in the 1980s when it really took off in a fever pitch on all these checkoff programs. All right, we got so much stuff, we got to promote it. We got to figure out a way to sell this stuff. Let's find a checkoff program. They get the thing pushed through, and there you got it. Because let's face it, you got three options. If you are in production and you want to maintain profitability, if you're producing a lot of stuff and you produce more than the market should bear, remember supply and, divert, cur, supply and demand curves, you produce more than there's actually demand for, that means you're probably then producing at below your production costs. Sound familiar? Look at corn prices. Look at where corn prices were. Now they've gotten a nice little rally. But what do we have? We have corn that's being produced at the cost of production or maybe even below cost of production. That means then the government has to come in and prop up the farm sector with monies that will make the farm sector profitable. So if you have a production facility, you have a production business, you've got three options if you want to keep your product up above break-even. They are promotion, produce it more cheaply than everybody else can. Now, that's, of course, how commodities work. Uh, Alcoa was cheaper at making aluminum siding than Joe and Roy's, uh, you know, uh, factory out in their garage. So you either promote the product, you produce it more cheaply than everybody else and figure out a way to get your costs in line so that somehow you're below the cost of, uh, you're, you're, sorry, you're below what the market price is so you can be profitable. Or the third option is you control production. That's right. You somehow limit the amount of product supplied because then demand stays stagnant where it was or maybe even goes up a little bit, but you bring the supply down and therefore when you bring supply down, demand stays constant. What do you have? You have higher prices. What happens in places like Canada with some of the uh, production limits that they put on, the quotas as it's called, or supply management as it's called, and maybe you've heard of this, maybe you have not. I have a lot of listeners uh, to my podcast up in Canada. I do a lot of work with good agricultural groups up in Canada. So supply management, it's most notably known in milk up there in, in uh, Canada. They, uh, they limit production. They have supply management on milk, but they also have it on poultry, eggs, and um, uh, maybe that's it, poultry and eggs, and, and um, I don't think they do so on pork, and I know they do not on beef. So we don't have supply management here in the United States of America. So you either limit the supply 
or you figure out a way that everybody's going to be able to produce more cheaply. And right now we're getting our butts handed to us by Brazil because of the way international uh, uh, finance is and the way monetary policy is right now. Their currency is cheap. So therefore, Brazil is more cheaply producing than we are when it comes to ag commodities like corn and soybeans. So where am I going with this? If you want to continue to produce what we're producing, you want to sell more of it, the only chance you have is through promotion. And my entire episode is going to point out to you that what if, what if we just don't have the capability of promoting enough to keep up with our production? And that's where I think we're headed. We've had these programs in place. Many of these programs have been in place since the 1980s. Can we do a good job of promotion? Yes. Can we do a better job that is being done? Probably in many cases, there's uh, some room for improvement because who would be so arrogant as to say we couldn't improve at what we're doing? I'm not bashing on any of the programs. I'm saying there's always room for improvement. But even if we do the improvement, can we promote enough to keep up with our ever-growing supply through our amazing productive capacity? And I think we will struggle with that. That is why I have talked about the need for continually coming up with alternative crops, alternatives to our mainstay commodities, because we're going to end up with a situation where we can't, no matter how much promotion we do, we could never keep up with the pace of our productive capacity. So let's talk about a couple of things here, because really it comes down to consumption And the way you grow demand is by growing consumption. You do that by finding new customers or by getting your existing customers to buy more of it, right? That's that's your two choices. Either I find new customers. uh, WNBA did that. Remember 20-some years ago, they come up with the WNBA? Generally speaking, the fans of the WNBA had not been sports fans before. So the WNBA essentially created new fans. They didn't steal them, per se, from a guy like me who watches college football. I didn't say, I'm going to stop watching college football and start watching the WNBA. Either I joined the WNBA party as a new fan, or they found people as an existing sports fan, but a new fan to their sport. But really what they did was they found a lot of individuals that had never been really sports fans before. It could be about their lifestyle. It could be whatever thing it was that appealed to them, but it worked at least to a certain degree. I mean, certainly they haven't overtaken the NFL, but that's an example. So in food and agricultural products, can we do that? From a promotional standpoint, can we find new customers? Uh, When I've worked with the National Pork Board, their data says that there's a certain percentage of Americans that have never eaten pork and will not, or at least they say so. And if you say, well, did you ever have pepperoni on your pizza? Oh, yeah, I love pepperoni pizza. Well, then you ate pork. But there's a lot of people that self-report saying they just don't eat pork products. So are you going to get those people to come on board? Likely not. Usually, it's better to find people that are already friendly toward your product or have a certain amount of experience with it than to grow them as become bigger, bigger consumers. Now then, the tough part is, is that enough to keep up with ever-growing supply? And that's where I continually believe that we moving forward from this time when I'm recording this right now in the year 2020 moving forward, we will always have the issue of more supply than we need. We will have surpluses and then we will have to say, all right, yeah, the government's going to give you some prop up money to produce that because we know that surpluses are good, keeps us strong, good for national defense. But at some point, we still can't promote enough to get through to burn through all the surpluses. So what do I see happening? I see that, again, commodities stay cheap. Commodities will stay cheap. Uh, 
but also we're going to be experimenting into new things. If you've read my book or you've heard me uh, deliver a speech, one of the points that I make in here, and this is uh, on page 241, a chapter toward the back of the book, Kearns a kale, canola, oh my, food of the future. In the United States of America, we did not grow soybeans to any appreciable level until after World War II. This year, the year 2020, we think there's going to be about 82 to 84 million acres of soybeans. That's how many were put in the ground. There's always some of those that don't get harvested, but let's call it over 80, right? Over 80 million acres. 100 years ago, when the American Soybean Association, that's not the checkoff entity, that's just an association for the professional aspect of, uh, and, and lobbying aspect of, the, uh, of soybean production, we have... 100,000 acres. So 100 years ago, it was about 100,000 acres of soybeans in the United States. Now we're at about 82 or so million. So the point is we found a whole bunch more application, a whole bunch more need, a whole bunch more places to use, to feed, to refine, to utilize soybeans. This was all done before there was ever a thing called the United Soybean Board. The United Soybean Board wasn't in existence 100 years ago. The promotional arm of soybeans, United Soybean Board, didn't create all that. Clearly, the marketplace did, right? We found more ways to utilize soybeans. That might happen with some of our commodities. Go with another example. Corn. We grow a lot of it here in my home state of Indiana. About 40, 38 to 40% of our corn right now is used for ethanol. That's one of the big uh, you know, things that Chekhov has done. We found a way to continue to push to, to use more corn, so that way you can keep on growing your corn right there in Iowa and Indiana and Nebraska and all of our corn states, and we're going to find new ways to use it. But some things promotion can't overcome. For instance, California just passed a law that says they will be requiring electric vehicles in just 15 years. Electric vehicles do not use ethanol. So, as a corn producer, this would have me concerned because no matter how much you promote something, if the marketplace goes away by regulation or just by good old evolution and extinction. Remember, there were some companies that were really profitable, that made good money, that used to make phone booths or pay phones. They're not doing so good now, are they? Because the marketplace changed, and it wasn't even because of regulation. It was just because of technology. So what if electric vehicles between the technology and the regulation limit our need or eliminate our need for this? Now, one thing you might say is, Damien, what if the National uh, Corn Growers Association, or what if, uh, you know, what if one of these other organizations, like United Soybean Board, went and lobbied and said, and they can't lobby, I'm sorry, they can only promote, can't lobby, can't lobby, only promote. What if they said, we're going to promote the heck out of use for soybean um, diesel uh, for cars? Be a better utilization than pulling that nasty stuff out of the ground, that dirty crude oil. Well, that could happen, but then you have the issue of, okay, in Nebraska, they might pass the rule that says you've got to run biodiesel. And if we're talking about the idea that something could be state to state, that certainly is plausible. Ag states might say, we're going to help out. We're going to help with the promotion. We're help with using up our supply. But again, if you're going up against California with your 4 million to their 40 million, you still have an issue of you're only going to use one-tenth as much of something, whether it's uh, ethanol or soy biodiesel or whatever. So there's going to be a time when promotion is certainly not enough to keep up with our production. 
we're so good at production that we're just going to be unable to promote enough to make that happen. And I can go through this list and tell you which products are probably more likely to have that happen. But the reality is, it's almost all of them. Because one thing that we've learned is production always catches up. Remember a few years ago, 2011, 10, 12, we had, at least in the plain states in the Midwest, we had an amazing run of commodity prices like we had never seen before. And then I heard people saying, here's the new normal. Here's the new normal in ag. And I said, no, that's not true because production always catches up to those prices. And when production catches up to seize those higher prices, what happens? The price comes down. As they always say in economics, the cure for high prices is high prices because once there's high prices to be attained, we produce like crazy to get those high prices and thereby bring up the supply, which brings down the price. So what are we going to hear? What are we going to see? I think we're going to see more oddball crops. I talk about it in my book, things like Kernza, a, a, a perennial wheat crop, which means you don't have to use as much tillage, you don't have to go over the ground as much, and you're going to be able to hold the soil, and you're going to also retain more moisture. Uh, canola, as I point out, when people say, I'm crazy, we're never going to grow these things like Kernza, canola was never a crop until really the 1980s. Two professors in Canada created this product, rapeseed, had an acidic problem, uh, was not mainstream, so they worked on some genetics and some breeding and worked around, and they came up with this new wonderful oil crop that had reduced the acid, canola, which stands for Canadian Oil Low Acid, because you can't market rape, no matter how good your promotion is. That's what we see in the future. We'll see more and more diversity of crops because our promotion will simply not be able to keep up. But while we're on this subject of promotion, I want to discuss what I see moving forward. I see that we're going to get better at our promotion. We're not doing a bad job in many regards now, but the only thing is we're going to probably become more branded. We're going to probably become just, okay, you're promoting a commodity, but the customer more and more in an affluent country like the United States wants more and more branding and more branding that speaks to them. Remember, consumers buy brands that say something about them, that make a statement about them. I'm a Smith & Wesson guy. That's right. Got me a six-shooter that's a Smith & Wesson. I'm a Marlboro guy. Oh, you know what I am? I am a butter Chardonnay fan. I buy this because it makes me feel good. Of course, I enjoy drinking wine. I'm just talking about the consumer, which, by the way, I don't drink wine. But the consumers buy things that make a statement about them, okay? So when you buy this, is there enough statement about you? Now, this is a branded product, meaning it's not generic milk. It's not, you know, Walmart milk. It's Prairie Farms. Good company, Midwestern cooperative, processor of milk. But does this jug say a lot about the person that buys it? That's where we're going to be moving into more and more from the marketing standpoint. I see promotion for our commodities getting a kick in the pants. Instead of it just saying beef, it's what's for dinner, we're going to see more like what happened 30 years ago where the certified Angus beef program came in and started saying things like, it's not just any beef, it's Angus beef. Or it's grass-fed. It's Laura's Lean grass-fed. You see where I think we're going to go? We're going to continue to see more branding and more specialization. While we're on the subject about promotion, we spend money through all of our programs. Hundreds of millions, billions have been invested through the checkoff programs. But is it still enough to compete with other products out there? Now, I'll give you an example. 
you've got this product, the stuff I was raised producing out of old Bessie out there on that dairy farm. Do they spend as much as this product right here, one of my other favorites? Chocolate milk and Coca-Cola, two things I drink every day of my life. But Coca-Cola spends 11% of revenue on branding and marketing. Did you hear what I just said? Coca-Cola, perhaps the most recognizable brand in the world. You can go to some third world country where not any person speaks your language, but you know what you can find? You can find you a Coca-Cola. And it'll look pretty similar to this. And it might be written in some foreign language, but you're going to see these this cursive and this red and this white because they spend 11% of global revenue on their marketing and branding initiatives. So if Coca-Cola is spending 11%, what are we out here with the National Peanut Board spending? Probably not 11% of revenue. So again, is promotion really what we're going to build? Are we going to be able to promote enough to satisfy the growing amount of productivity that we have? What else do I see happening? Eventually, of course, marginal land that was maybe raised, uh, using to raise on uh, peanuts or whatever's on this list will probably revert back to nature. Because if we can't promote our way out of the production, we're just going to probably bring down production. Some people will exit the marketplace. That's what always happens, right? Remember American Motors? You probably don't remember American Motors. They got absorbed because there was not room for them. These things happen in all different capacities. It's probably going to happen that way in agriculture. While we're talking about the promotion, the shrimp people used me about a year and a half ago as a consultant brought me in to talk about this very subject of marketing and promotion through something like a checkoff program and asked me to do a presentation about what I've seen that worked and does not work in the entire industry of agriculture. If you have a question like that, certainly I'd love to work with you or your organization. So the shrimp people do not have a checkoff nor promotional program right now. They just produce shrimp and they put it out there at the retail level at grocery stores through the distributors, of course, or through restaurants. Shrimp might be heading into the same issue that all of us are heading into in agriculture. They thought it was unique to them, but after I worked with them and explained to them, this is not unique to you. This is, frankly, the issue with all of production agriculture. They were, they were predicting one and a half years ago that the amount of shrimp produced globally on farms, because almost all the shrimp that is consumed in the world comes from farms, very little of it is caught wild, they were going to look at a situation where in the next four years, they thought they might double global production. If you double global production and population stays roughly the same, you've got a couple options. You can sell it cheaper, um, significantly cheaper, maybe find a bunch of new customers there. Maybe poor folks and poor countries were not eating shrimp. They will now because you just took your price down. But if you take your price down, are you retaining profitability? United States of America, we eat about four pounds of shrimp per American per year. That's the highest consumed seafood. Salmon is after that at around three to three and a half pounds. So are you ready to eat eight pounds of shrimp? And what would motivate you to do it? Would it be the price? The price has to come down. Does the price need to come down by half? These are issues of economics and food, right? Would the price coming down to half still make you hungry enough for shrimp? Double the amount you eat it now? That's the concern. Will we ever be able to promote enough to keep up with our productive capacity? And the answer is somewhere in the middle. We can produce less, and we're going to probably need to, and we're going to have to promote a little more. 
And we're going to probably promote a little bit more branded products. We're going to, my prediction is we're going to brand a few things and make it a more specialized product because even if you say you start with uh, the commodity of milk or shrimp, what can we do that makes it look different enough to the consumer that makes that consumer want to buy it because it says something about them? And that's where the future of all marketing for all food products and all ag products, I believe, goes. You'll have commodity level. Certainly, you're trying to market soybeans, it's going to be, these are soybeans, these are American soybeans, these are high oleic soybeans, or low, whatever that thing might be, organic soybeans. But the reality is, after a certain point of breaking that from a pure commodity to some sub-commodities, we're not going to probably have, we're not going to probably have branded soybeans because uh, that is probably a ways off. But we're going to see more specialization in things like, uh, I would say, the peanuts or the avocados or even the mushrooms or the honey or the mangoes or many of these other things right here. Let's talk about a commodity that has grown by leaps and bounds in terms of its consumption. And it's never had any money spent, really, at the checkoff level or through a commodity marketing and promotion program. And that's chicken. I've got the American Egg Board, but you'll notice on this list, there is nothing about poultry. There's nothing about chicken. There is no marketing checkoff monies being held back specifically to say, eat more chicken. Why is that? Well, no. Doctors in the healthcare industry started telling people they should eat more chicken 20 or 30 years ago. That might have helped them. But does it explain the meteoric rise? Because maybe you didn't know the number. Just saw an article this morning that my banker friend sent me about chicken. We're going to consume just about 100 pounds of bird per American per year this year. We're going to come close to 100 pounds of chicken consumption in the United States of America per person this year. 50 years ago when I was born, 51 years ago when I was born, it was around 28 pounds. So we have darn near four times, certainly we've three and a half times, more than three and a half times our consumption of chicken in that time frame. And yet they have had no industry promotional monies withheld or spent to make that happen. So what's their strategy? Be cheap play into some healthcare uh, advice, and keep on producing. So those are your options. Remember we said that up front? When I asked the question, can we ever promote enough to retain huge profitability and continue to burn through the vast amount of supply that we create? The answer is probably not. Give you another uh, thought for consideration about going on from chicken. When we look at the consumption trends, when we look at the consumption trends, then you've got to wonder, Is it because of the promotion or is it because it caught the trend? And I talked about that also in my book, which I encourage you to pick up a copy of, uh, Food Fear. And I talk about the trend. The trend is your friend until until the end when it bends. That's the old saying. Cheese. Cheese consumption is around three to three and a half times also, just like chicken, what it was 40 or 50 years ago. We did an amazing job. Now, is that because of promotion or is it because the American consumer got more cheesy? Again, it's probably a function of both. While consumption of this fluid white milk declined, consumption of cheese has increased by about three times. So it's been a remarkable thing. Is it because of promotion? Possibly. Good for them. Is it because of consumption patterns changing? Yes. Is it because of tastes and palates? Absolutely. 
So I'll leave you with those questions. I want you to always believe and understand that I know it sounds simplistic, but a lot of folks probably get so caught up in what they do. They're selling chemicals or they're delivering machinery or they're out here in the food processing business and they're listening to this podcast and they're saying, Damien, this is all kind of simplistic, but you know, I hadn't really thought about it because you got three choices. You either continue to produce it cheap, look at chicken, and don't worry about promotion and don't worry about limiting uh, production. You just produce the hell out of it and be cheap. Or you control production, which you can do if it's your company. You can say, I'm not going to make as much stuff. But if everybody else keeps making more stuff, what do you have? Then you say, all right, as an industry, we need to constrict our production. We need to slow it down like they have done with quotas and supply management. I used Canada as the example. I'm not bashing by any means. I love the Canadian people. Please wave your flag little sugar maple leaf. Other countries do it also. Many countries in Europe had quotas and supply management on production, especially in things like dairy. So you either produce it cheap, you limit production through supply management, which requires government effort, and it requires producers to buy into this thing. Because certainly, if they're out here going rogue, then you got a problem. And what's your third option is to promote. And I leave you with the question, can we ever promote enough to really keep all of our vast amount of production profitable. And I believe we're going to struggle with that, which is why we're going to continue to differentiate. We're going to have more branded stuff. We're going to have more oddball specialty items because the consumer right now will pay for that. And the consumer in the United States of America continues to want products that say something about them. That's where promotion is going. What does it say about you that you eat our stuff or you drink our stuff or you burn and buy our stuff? What does it say about you? That's the future of promotion in my in my in my humble opinion. You are listening to The Business of Agriculture, a podcast that seeks to give you information, insights, and outside ideas and a little perspective about this wonderful, wonderful world, the world of agriculture, the world's most important industry, the business of agriculture, which is brought to you by Nick Horeb, my buddy that founded Harvest Profit. He's going to be a guest of mine here in a future episode talking about ag technology and some stuff that's coming down the road. You're going to love that. So Nick Horeb, harvestprofit.com is where you'll find him. If you need a software solution for your agricultural enterprise, please look up Nick. He's a good guy. He's got good stuff. His goal was to create a software solution to help your ag enterprise be more profitable. And after all, they talk about sustainability and you talk about the family farm. None of that stuff can happen if you are not making a profit. Nick Horb, check out harvestprofit.com. Until next time, I very much appreciate you being here. Please share this with your non-ag friends. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. I really appreciate it. It'll help the visibility. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Business of Agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear, or Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com.